DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. It is time to check in with Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider and our purveyor of all sorts of Fresno knowledge. And I got a Fresno question for you coming up later, Steve, so brace yourself for that, okay? All right. It's Fresno football <laughs> question, but you know, you're in charge of Fresno for us. You handle our Fresno Bureau, so we're just going to lean on you for that. Uh, but let's start with the basketball, and uh, the news is breaking that the college basketball tournament is going to, all of March Madness is going to Indianapolis to one site, well, uh, to several sites, but in, largely in one city, maybe down at Bloomington, I guess, the University of, of Indiana, just watching the way things have gone in college basketball this year. What kind of a season are we going to have leading up to this? What confidence do you have? that they're going to get most of the games in and it's going to look somewhat like a normal season? Well, I don't think it's going to look like a normal season. Um, I think that just just watching and seeing the, all of the COVID protocols and see how, you know, and I, I look right now, you're, you know, you're talking about Fresno, and so I'm looking at the Mountain West and, and all the cancellations of games. And, and, you know, not every school has the resources to do this as well as others. I, I know here in Fresno, uh, they didn't even come in during the summer. They didn't even start the protocols because financially they didn't have the ability to do it, and the state just wouldn't allow them. Whereas, you know, I, I know other institutions have put the protocols together. So everything's not equal, and you, you're, you know, you're seeing more of canceled, 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 or postponed. Uh, I think the only way they can do this is to do it in a bubble. Um, and you know what? I think it'll be exciting. It'll it'll still obviously have our interest, but there, there's no way that they're going to make up all of these games. There's, there's not going to be time, and how they're going to figure that out, I think is going to be the, the biggest question, because how do you make up four or five or six conference games? So now you go on basically, what if you only play 50% of your conference games and you had a good preseason? Does that put you in a position to be into the tournament? I think those are going to be the really hard questions, just as we just saw in football where Ohio State gets there, they get bad mouth for a couple of weeks. It's not right. People aren't voting for them. And the next thing you know, they're in, the, they're in the championship game. So there will be challenges in terms of determining who those teams are going to be. And I'm sure they'll get it right for the most part. But the idea of conference play not having the magnitude that it normally has during the course of the year is an unfortunate thing, but it's just the world we're living in this year. So they can do it in a bubble. That, that's fantastic. Could you take a minute to give us your thoughts on Dave Rose? Well, <laughs> I don't know if I'm prepared to do that here on public radio, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Dave's been on my mind a lot. You know, we uh, we've had a history together. I I will tell you a, a real experience with Dave that kind of gives you an indication of of the love that I have for him. You know, when I when I got the job. At BYU, I knew Dave. I'd only met Dave one time. We played in his tournament at Dixie. I had a really, really good team at Fresno City. We never ended up playing each other, but we got to know each other for the first time. And I think it was October uh, of 1996. And in, you know, in April of '97, we'd be uh, coaching together at BYU. But I can, I'll never forget. I flew back to see Dave. Uh, I'd call him, and after I got the job, and. You know, I think John Wardenberg had been a good friend of mine, and I think he was, at that time was his assistant. He thought I was calling to talk about John because I didn't really know Dave. And uh, when I got Dave on the phone, I was back at Hutchison, and, and I said, hey, listen, 
I'm flying into Salt Lake. I was still trying to put my staff together. I had Heath. I knew that was going to happen, and I knew I was going to bring Brian to be the ops guy. But as it turns out, I just said, Let, meet, meet me at, uh, at a restaurant there in Salt Lake. And we went. And anyway, long story short, we had a chance to spend about two hours together and get to know each other. And at that time, I just got a really strong impression that he, you know, I'd love to have him work on my staff, even though I didn't know him at all. And the idea that five junior college coaches, well, four junior college coaches and a guy that had never been in coaching uh, would, would make up our staff, uh, looking back, is kind of crazy. But uh, Dave and I, so Dave, I said, Dave, when are you going to be coming through Pro Bowl? He said, well, my daughter Chanel is playing in a basketball tournament, a high school tournament. And so what ends up happening, he said, let's come down, meet, meet in my office tomorrow after the game, and we'll talk about it with, with, you know, your, with your wife and with Chanel, who was with them. And so they come down, walk into the office, and uh, we sit there, and I'm introducing myself because I don't know them at all, and leading up to us. And all of a sudden, I start talking about putting my staff together, and all of a sudden, Cheryl and Chanel kind of have crocodile tears going down their cheeks. And, and it wasn't for happiness. Uh, it was one of these things where they were entrenched in St. George. That was home. That was everything they ever wanted. But I, I turned and eventually I, I looked at Dave and I'm thinking, I said, Dave, have you, have you not talked to Cheryl or your family about the fact that I offered you a job? And he just kind of looked at me with this little cheesy grin and he just shook his head. No, uh, dude, come on. <laughs> this is a pretty major thing. You know, the two women are crying in my office. And Dave's just sheepishly sitting there listening to me talk. He kind of set me up pretty good there. And so we worked through it, spent an hour or two together, and it, it all worked out. But it was hard. It was a hard move for them and a hard move for kids who were in high school. But Dave, Dave you know, thinking back about my relationship with Dave, and, you know, he, he obviously he's a great competitor and a great mind and, and all the basketball things, but uh, he, he had a big heart. And he, he was he was a guy, sometimes a man of, of a few words at that time, you know. I mean, obviously we know what he did and all the success that he's had at BYU. But there's a personal side today that uh, I've always really appreciated. And uh, he, he, he had the ability to connect with people like I felt like I did. And I wanted to get a staff of people that could connect with kids. And I felt like we did that. And I think that was one of Dave's greatest Assets. I mean, obviously, he has a good basketball mind, but his, I think, and I, and I consider one of my strengths, I consider the strengths of that staff is that we were able to connect with people. And I said, and so I look back on that experience, and, and, and you know, he, he, he didn't connect real well with his own family at the time, but it was just heartwarming to me to see that family at that moment and then think back to what's happened. So when I found out about this, uh, Tim McComb had called me. Uh, it, it was hard and, and difficult, and I know he's had some really good days the last couple of days, and he's making progress. He's a fighter, and I mean, my goodness, you're dealing with uh, cancer, you're dealing with a heart attack, you're dealing with a stroke, and those are difficult, tough things, but uh, I, I, we all believe in Dave. Uh, he is a good friend, very loyal to me, and uh, I will forever be grateful for our friendship, and it's not like we talk every week it's not not that way but we've had memories together that you can only have in this business and good ones and bad ones difficult times and some really great times but uh i love dave i love his family and 
God bless them, and hopefully uh, things continue to go down the road they are now where there are some positive things are happening. There's, there's no guarantee, but uh, we, he, he has a special place in my heart. You know, uh, listening to that story, and I didn't know that story, it made me, first off, I can totally see that sheepish grin you're talking about. I can I can absolutely see that look on his face. I think we've all seen that more than once. Uh, but for all the basketball we've talked with you, can you talk a little bit about what coaches' wives go through and the coaches' wives tend to, not completely, but largely fall into two groups. You're awesome or you're out. Yeah, you know, uh, for, for, for I think for both of us, I mean, Cheryl, you know, and I look at Cheryl and Dave and, and Cheryl was really engaged, and, and uh, they were married when Dave was at Houston, and, and uh, you know, they're just connected. And, and Cheryl was, you know, she was a big fan. You know, I, I look at my wife, Kip, who kind of stayed back a little bit and didn't want all the, all the public fanfare and so forth. Those, you know, coaches' wives live and die with, uh, you know, every, each and every game when you come home. And I tried to be really good, and I think Dave did this as well, uh, uh, but to, to not bring those burdens home. But, you know, it, it, there are special women that uh, th- this business is hard on marriages. I've had some really good friends whose families were broken up through this business and the craziness of it and just the pressure and the stress and all the things that come with coaching at the collegiate level or at the professional level. And I think... You know, Cheryl has. I, I, I mean, Cheryl was so involved. We got involved very early on. She and I did uh, with with this, you know, this cancer uh, group that we brought young kids together. And and I, you know, I always remember Cheryl. You know, and, and Kip would Kip would talk about how much she respected Cheryl and how involved Cheryl was. And both of the, you know, both of these women were raising their children at home, by dealing with husbands who had mood swings that were high and low and dealing with the public. Those are never easy things. Um, and, I, and I think both our wives did it in very perfect ways for them and who they were. But, but certainly Cheryl, as I think back on Cheryl and her experience and how loyal she is and what a great wife she has been to Dave and a great family that they have, obviously our our kids, my son Skyler, just moved back to Provo with his his four kids, and they're very close with you know that with Dave and his kids, and and so it's been nice to see that to see my family, to see Dave and Cheryl kind of take care of my children who are now back up in Provo with my son Skyler, and so there's always been a connection. But wives wives are so important because they're just that support is so needed especially during the difficult times, everything's fine when we're winning. But when those things are not going right or we're having player issues, uh, those moments with my wife, and I know Dave with Cheryl, were, were incredible. But the Cheryl, Cheryl, Dave's got a wonderful wife in Cheryl. And uh, she, she's a fighter just like Dave. She's competitive. And uh, they'll fight this thing. And, and you know, God willing, uh, he, he'll make the recovery he needs to make. But whatever happens, uh, I know there's a lot of friends and a lot of family praying for Dave, and we will continue to do that as intently as he's fighting it. 
So turning to the Jazz, you know, they've only played six games, but it's been a little bit of a crazy go here. About a couple games where they've looked awful, and then a couple of games, man, they've looked like they bring on the Lakers, bring on the Celtics of the uh, 80s, whoever it might be. As a coach, what do you do to try to find that consistency level that they're going to need over the course of the next 70-some games? You know, I, I think one of the things that impacts this a lot is the fact that they're playing in front of empty arenas. And you have to be – I think one of the big things that coaches in, that, in, in the NBA need to do is, is preparing their guys for the fact that there aren't fans. There isn't a home court advantage, really. I mean, honestly, you know, playing on the road, playing at home, you see teams and there's been so many surprises in the first six or seven games here. I mean, if we were to look at the playoffs, we'll talk about that in a second, but I mean, it'd be a different looking group that you would think. But the, the, the total lack of a home court advantage means that you've got to have mature guys. And it'll be, you know, I think this is going to be difficult for, for young guys in two ways. One, it'll be difficult because in, in, in the sense that they, when they play at home, usually young players, at, when they're at home, they, they get that energy and they have more confidence they go on the road. The benefit for the young players is that there are no fans there. And so there, there is an equality there that maybe that, that wouldn't normally be there. So when you see teams kind of go through these highs and lows, I can't even imagine coaching in that situation where it just feels like a scrimmage in practice. And uh, so as I look at the Jazz, and obviously they've got some maturity there, They've been there. It's, it's obvious that when Bogdanovich and Conley and Mitchell and Clarkson are clicking and they're scoring 60, 70, or 80 points, they're games that they're going to always be in a position to win. And I, and I think that they're doing the right. I look at the, the games they've played. I mean, I think the last time we talked, they'd only played two games, and now they're 4-2 and two with a good win over the Clippers, obviously. Uh, and, uh, and, and the Suns were way better than they were. So losing to them is not a bad thing. But I – I like the way that I've watched the Jazz win lately. And, and, and really, the responsibility of this team is, is those four guys. I, in my mind, I mean, I know Gobert and everybody has a role, but when Bogdanovich and Conley and Mitchell and Clarkson are going for 15 to 22 or 25, this team's going to be in every game. And they play, they play a really, really – I mean, you've got to make baskets. We know this team's unselfish. We know they have a great culture. We know they're going to be prepared defensively. But I, I think the onus of this season comes down to those four guys consistently. And Bogdanovich has been a little bit inconsistent, you know. He'll have 28, and then, then he'll have three. And so, you know, I think it's just that's a critical piece for me. I, I know they have all the pieces. They may not be the most talented team, but they, I've always talked about this with the Jazz. I think the sum of their parts is greater than their individual players. And I think with this team, uh, th- those guys really need to come every time they come out. Is, is they've got to make baskets because I know they're going to have a good defensive game plan. You know they're not going to have off-court issues really. Uh, they, they don't have to deal with a lot of young players. They've got a pretty experienced group here, and so you know I, I like I like their place, and, I, and I, I think they've got a great chance to be a be a team that is in the, you know the top four or five and and. Uh, have a home court advantage or whatever, that's probably not worth that much except the fact you get to sleep in your own bed. And It's better than the bubble where you're away from family, away from home, at least here in this situation. You can be with family, friends, have normal sleep. Uh, I guess that's the benefits of playing at home with no fans. 
Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider, joining us. PK may have busted me a time or two for getting a little ahead of myself on some theory I got and wishing something into existence that isn't happening yet. Gobert seems to be playing at a different level. Maybe there's some type of controlled, I don't know if rage is the right word or something, but there's some kind of nuclear reactor in there that's powering him to another level here. But I'm wondering if it's sustainable. A guy that big playing that hard over the course of an NBA season, uh, that might be a bridge too far. I might be jumping the gun here. What do you think out of what you've seen out of him so far and how much he can sustain this? Well, he, you know, I, I, that is the question because he's played very well. I, I think a couple things have happened. He came under so much scrutiny publicly, and not, not, not so much from his own fan base, but for just from media and everybody, that's the whole COVID thing. And nobody can really appreciate, because guys are going to keep this stuff to themselves, but that, that's a hurtful thing. You know, I mean, when you're, pub, you're in the public eye and you have people saying things and doing things, it's one thing to get on public and say, hey, we're moving forward, and his relationship with Donovan. That, that had to hurt inside. And, uh, and he had to be questioning himself with all of the stuff that's out there about even what his role was going to be on this team. And, uh, and I, I, have no, uh, I don't have no privileges in terms of knowing what's happening on the inner circles of the Utah Jazz and what's happening with coaches and players. But I think they've done a nice job. And then with new management and new ownership, uh, I, I think that contract was a really important statement by the Jazz that said, we have confidence in you, we want you here. I bet that during the course of the summer, he wasn't sure he was wanted even by his teammates, let alone ownership and, uh, and a coaching staff. I mean, I think there's questions. We, we are all pretty sensitive to those things. And, and, and when you get in the public's eye and you see yourself on Twitter and all forms, platforms of social media, and it's mostly negative, that had to really impact his psyche, even though they weren't playing games. And so when they have worked through this, he personally has had to work through it, maybe with coaches, with counseling, who knows what, but he got through it. And then for the Jazz to say, we want you. We want you to be a part of this. Man, that had to give him a lot of confidence. And I think that he's committed. He knows now that this organization is committed to him because I think there were moments where, they, where he wasn't sure. I mean, I'm speaking strictly, this is my own personal conjecture, but I'm thinking that there were times that he wondered if he was in the right place. I think he knows that now, and I think he's relaxed, and I think he's going to play his butt off and play hard every night, and there's going to be nights where he makes baskets and doesn't, but he's got 15, 20 rebounds and plays with that kind of aggression. The coaches will have to manage those minutes and figure out what's best for him, but I think his mind is better than it's been probably in the last six, seven, eight months. What's getting into Paul George, man? He looks like he is on a tear. You know, there's an, and it's a similar situation. You know, uh, I, I had texted Paul a couple times, and I mean, he went through a lot of scrutiny in this whole bubble, and uh, and it's hard. And, and you know, we we kind of think these guys don't read that and don't. You know, come on, these guys—they're on every social media platform, and, and and really, if their agents and everybody and their parents and good friends—I mean, I I can remember. So you're a good friend telling me, man, you cannot get online. You cannot get on the Internet. I, I, you, I, and don't do it. On, you know, you, there's a tendency you get on, you want to hear stuff. People say good things about you when you win. I just eliminated that in my life. And for whatever I, the goodness I might have felt when I was, uh, you know, winning games and having success, I didn't want to bear the negativity, even if it was, you know, somebody's opinion, some 13-year-old kid. It didn't matter. And Paul went under a lot of scrutiny. And, uh, you know, he, he was blamed for a lot of things, his leadership abilities, his, 
you know, his relationship with players. And I, I know this kid, man, and it, he is a great human being and a good leader. Hey, nobody's perfect, and nobody's going to play great all the time. But uh, I know that just like Rudy Gobert, Paul has something to prove. And it, it doesn't mean he's going to score 30 every night, but he, he's got a different mindset than they, he had a year ago when they had Kawhi, and the expectation was they beat the Lakers early. They're expected. Everybody felt in their hearts when it was all said and done the Clippers were the best team. And it didn't prove to be that way. And, uh, and I don't think it's going to be any easier for them to beat whoever the Lakers or whoever else is there. But I think Paul has a different mindset as well. And he, he just has to stay within himself and can't listen to and be impacted by all the outside noise. Steve, as always, we appreciate the time. Fresno, there is a little town 45 minutes west that has produced an NFL quarterback. How big a deal is that? That's huge, man. You ever been to Fireball? I have not been to Fireball. I can tell you I have not. <laughs> One high school, 10, yeah. 10 12,000 people, something like that, and Josh Allen. Yeah. Uh, I saw yeah. stuff. There's this NFL map thing, the website I go to, and it shows like the whole state of California is getting one game, but the I think they were getting the Steelers and the Browns, but Fresno was getting the Bills. People were like what, tweeting out, why, why is that? It seems like, Josh Allen, dude, fireball. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I don't know his whole story. I, I think he went. I think he went juke before he went to Wyoming. He did. And, he did. And I did. And obviously, I wasn't watching him play high school football. But I, I know his story. And I, I, the interesting thing is, of course, everybody knows the guy. Oh yeah, I know his uncle. I've got a golf course. We'll be talking about football or something. And I said, come on, man. You don't. You don't know who he is. No, really. I. His dad was a farmer. You know. I. But those are close knit communities. They're. Blue collar people, you know the the valley. I mean, they're farmers. They're people that work hard and get up early and and work late and good values and never been given anything. And that kid's never been given anything, and he just fought through it. And you, how can you not just be happy for a guy like that when they come from those circumstances? I'm not saying he came from a bad home. I'm sure he had a great family. I don't know anything about him, but that community. I've been in that community enough, and I know people there. Remember, even as a high school coach, going into that community. Uh, you know, it, it's small town America, man. And but they got good values, strong values, work, good work ethic, and those all the things that he personifies as a player. Besides really being talented, so don't ever think that a guy can't go juke. And I mean, Wyoming's not exactly a great football destination. Playing, can you imagine? I mean, you you followed that league long enough, man. Playing football up there in Laramie. Uh, you know, one of my craziest memories when i was coaching at byu there was no inside hotels all doors were to the outside so you had you had to go you, know, you went to your room with an outside door like an old motel six and uh i have never been colder than i have <laughs> in my life and, and in indiana it was pretty cold but in laramie when the winds were blowing and you'd walk outside to get on a bus man it, it was so cold and i'm thinking he played football in that weather so uh, he's not going to be a soft kid, and he, he's not going to be expected to be given anything. And he, his, uh, his approach to everything is going to be uh, pretty grounded. And so I'm, I'm happy to see him. You can't, we can't help but pull for the kid. And I don't know him, but he's, you know, God bless him, man. He's, he's helped. Uh, he's really done a great job there, and it's fun to watch him have success. 
Yeah, he played his uh, juco ball at Reedley, so still Reedley, off the yeah, beaten, yeah, still off about, the beaten path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> right. 20, it's, it's a half hour from here. They're in our conference, and uh, and 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 it is. It was called Kings River for a while, and then it came back to Reedley. But uh, small little campus with probably, you know, fifteen hundred kids. Yeah. So and and certainly not a football power. All right. Well, Steve, we appreciate the time, and now Fresno's got a rooting interest big time in these playoffs with the Bills. Thanks a lot, Steve. Have a great week.